0: The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Vinhook for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there!
1: A basin is just a container that, that can accept sediment. okay? That really is what a basin is. It's an accommodation space. It's probably the best way to think about it. We don't dump things into it.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience and technology stories from the world of ore deposits. This podcast is a partnership between the Society of Economic Geologists and Sequent. You can listen on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. Your hosts for this series are Nicole Doucette, Sequent, Hallie Keeble, Cobalt Metals, and I'm Ann Thompson from PetroScience Consultants. Last week, you got a taste of what is in store for the SEG 2020 Vision Conference, but as our world continues to adapt to living with COVID-19, we've made the decision to postpone to September 2021. An extra year to wait, I know, but it should make the reunion and celebration even better. Meanwhile, we will continue to bring you podcasts that delve into stories and up-to-date discussion of topics relevant to economic geology, from ore deposit models to data integration, technology, and more. This episode takes you on a journey, linking people and the rocks they love across four continents. I asked Neil Fernandez and Brian Mahoney while we were in Toronto at PDAC To help me set the scene with a big picture overview of ore deposits in basins. Not an easy task.
2: If you were to think about something like the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific, you know, where would you look for a sediment-hosted zinc deposit that's forming right now in that stratigraphy? Are you looking in parts of the the basin where the, the sediments are still loosely consolidated? Are they already lithified? What we're learning is that there's such a vast spectrum of deposits. Whether they're copper, zinc, uranium. And the scale that these deposits form on can sometimes really be challenging for people exploring in sedimentary basins because we used to think about these big masses of water with hundreds and hundreds of meters of water depth that were just impenetrable. And you would see just these dark, dark, like swimming around with anglerfish sort of images. That's the first order scale of things. And as we get a little bit more resolution, we're learning how basins with metal deposits actually form in second, third, possibly even fourth order structures. And ultimately, what we're learning about is what they're tapping into in terms of the crust, which is the source of the metals that they come from. For a long time,
3: it was just thought that basins were just this ultimate deposit, very boring things, black shales settling out through time. We're beginning to understand the basin environment is extremely dynamic with a variety of different structural features that are controlling basin development, different sorts of fluid flow, driving mechanisms, basaltic sills and other things being injected into the sediments. The biostratigraphy, the, bi- the biologic component turns out to be absolutely vital. The variations through time as basin chemistry changes, all of these things we're just starting to get a handle on and they're absolutely critical for how we understand the development of ore deposits in basins through time.
0: Can either of you give me a good idea of what the scale of the actual resources are that come out of basins, you know, in terms of of the supply of metals and, and what we use in the world?
2: From a personal perspective, I think these the big tonnage deposits tend to be hosted in siliciclastic rocks, and we're talking about things that are between 50 uh, million tons to about, in the case of MacArthur River, something like 250 million tons, grading between 10 and 14 percent zinc, 5 to 7 percent lead. There's also an important component of silver in a lot of quote-unquote shale-hosted massive sulfide deposits. The The, the African copper belt is, is an incredible source, obviously, of copper and, and 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 then they're usually enhanced by supergene processes to make the metallurgical processing earlier because they're oxidized. But also things like cobalt, where even fractions of a percent of cobalt are a moneymaker for a lot of companies.
3: But they also vary tremendously. One thing that interests me quite a bit is there's a deposit called the Nemo deposit in the Richardson Trough, which is one of the world's largest nickel deposits. It's probably never going to be mine. however, because it's approximately 4 centimeters thick and covers several hundred thousand square kilometers. And so how does that even happen? We have no
2: idea how that occurs. We think it's probably biologically controlled, but the question stands. We're not really sure how that happens. And Brian highlights a really important part about the biological conditions, that how bugs and life mediate a lot of what's going on in the sedimentary basins, whether it's in uh, plankton blooms or oxygen uh, starvation events, or whether it's upwelling of phosphates and under Understanding how upwelling conditions can create very favorable conditions for life and also for formation of ore deposits, and we're just beginning to get a handle on
3: on variations in space and time. For example, there might be a huge influence of the role of continental weathering through time and how that changes oceanic chemistry, or the tectonic setting and the position of the oceanic uh, continental crustal bound and the localization of large deposits. So, another question for you too: How do you go and explore for these things? Carefully carefully it boils team. down boils down to first principles you've got to understand the geology of the area you're working in uh, we're learning from things like studies in the MacArthur Basin that sequence stratigraphy and understanding, this, understanding the stratigraphic character of the rocks is very important. Understanding faces associations, understanding bounding structures, understanding the source area that's shedding sediments into the siliciclastic basins. Uh, there's no magic wand, you can just go in and take a look at a particular geophysical signature. It's an, it is an interplay of all types of different disciplines, a multidisciplinary approach is how we're going to not only understand
2: our existing deposits, but perhaps discover new ones in the future. I think using the the different thought processes of different geologists, and we certainly have a lot of ideas uh, and integrating, and our challenge is now integrating all that information from all these seemingly disparate sort of uh, sub-genres of of sedimentary geology into the bigger picture. I think that's where the next discovery will be made by integrating all of that information.
0: Murray Hitzman has had a distinguished career in exploration, academia, and government. Home for Now is in Dublin, Ireland, where he is the director of ICRAG, a research center for applied geosciences. I think that it's a fascinating progression in your career. Many people wouldn't know that you actually started out working for Chevron and doing exploration, as you did, over a broad part of the world. So what got you from working for Chevron to Ireland?
1: Well, let me start even earlier, given what the the, uh, subject of this podcast is about. So I grew up in Oklahoma, northeast Oklahoma, and my father was actually a microbiologist but worked for Phillips Petroleum. My grandfather was an oil geologist and discovered a lot of oil in Osage County. So I grew up out in the uh, country with literally oil wells in our backyard, which, of course, we didn't own anything from. I swore I'd never become an oil geologist, (laughs) but my first uh, real job was as a geophysicist for uh, Phillips Petroleum, working on West Texas. So I quickly learned that being a geophysicist at that time meant going through gazillions of punch cards and never seeing a rock. But I had a fascination from an early age, I guess, with sedimentary rocks since I'd grown up with them, and I ended up doing my Ph.D. on a sediment-hosted copper uh, cobalt deposit in Alaska. And then when I did work for Chevron after my Ph.D., I gravitated towards the sediment-hosted deposits, probably, probably because everybody else is working on porphyries, to be honest. I just wanted to do something different. And, and for those of you who know, you know, a, about a quarter of the world's copper does come from, from non-porphyries, and almost all the world's cobalt, a large majority of it, and the world's lead zinc is from sedimentary rocks, too, primarily. So it's an important area, and it's fascinating.
0: Where in the world do we find sedimentary copper, and and right. why? Right. So, so
1: where we find it in the world is everywhere, which is really interesting. So, sedimentary copper is actually probably one of the most common styles of sulfide mineralization on the planet since the Paleoproterozoic. Okay, there wasn't any before. But time.
0: That. Time is critical.
1: Time is really important. So, before there was oxygen in the atmosphere and we had oxygenated sediments, we didn't have sedimentary copper before that. But since then, the the actual ore system to form a sedimentary copper deposit is incredibly simple. You simply need some sort of fluid, and it can be sort of any temperature from probably about a 90 degrees C to several hundred. It has to have enough uh, ligand in it to carry some sort of metal, so probably a bit of chlorine is the most common, but you don't even need a lot. And and so it'll pick up copper, and we can go into where it picks it up. And then it just has to hit a reductant, and that reductant can be anything, really. It can be a bit of graphite. It can be a bit of organic matter sitting in a sediment. It can be pyrite. It can even be magnetite in some cases. There's enough potential there. And that fluid will react and dump out that copper as a copper sulfide. So very, very common. Now, to get a good deposit, you want both a chemical and a physical trap, so you, you know, concentrate. So, so then you ask, so, so, you know, where are they? So that's where they are. They're everywhere except through time, right? So from the paleoprotozoids until today, they're forming today in the Gulf of California and places like that. You can actually go out and see the system working. Yeah, but, but in terms of big ones, so the things we actually really mine and we make money out of, this is what's really fascinating. There's only two places in the entire world where we have lots and lots of world-class deposits of this type. And one is in Europe, spread between Poland and Germany, and that's the Kupfer-Schiefer. And the other is in southern Central Africa, going from the Democratic Republic of Congo down into Zambia, and that's called the Central African Copper Belt. And so those two contain... oh if we plot all up it, it's it's way more than than sort of 60% of the world's sedimentary copper ore. That's massive. Yeah, it's really that amazing.
0: Ex- fairly significant. So so I guess that answers the question of where would you go explore?
1: Yeah, it would be nice to find another one, you know, a third to, to make a sort of a a set and some of us have been trying to do that for a while and there are some other important deposits of the type in the world, Dezjogan in Kazakhstan. White Pine in Michigan. There are others, but it's amazing that these two districts have have so much. Just as in the porphyry world, it's it's really truly amazing that Northern Chile, Southern Peru, are the way they are. Or
0: so well endowed. Yeah. So
1: well endowed.
0: So what do we still need to know? What missing from our understanding that would help us in this process of finding maybe the third region or?
1: So so why are those two areas so incredibly good?
0: <laughs> I guess so. So, exactly. Why are these two areas incredibly good? Have we learned what makes them special? I think we're on
1: track to learn. Have we learned it entirely? No. I mean, no. Are we getting there? Yeah, I think we are. But the two things that, that actually link the two districts, the Cooper Schieffer and, and uh, Central African there there's several things that, that go together. One, if we look at the paleogeography of the basins that host those, the Zetstein Basin and the Katongan Basin, both of them are, are intracratonic basins, so they're inside a continent. They're not continental margin basins, okay? So that's, that's one, and I think that's important for a couple of reasons. Two, they both formed at relative, well, within the tropics, let's put it that way. We don't know exactly where, where they were at relative to the equator, but they were within the tropics. So the, the paleo environment was warm. Three, and this is the part we really do not understand, but, but there's probably something here. They both formed during periods when we went switched overall world climate from warm to hot. So there's something there, and that probably is affecting ocean chemistry in ways we don't really understand yet. Then the other things that are similar between those two basins. One contains, and the other clearly did contain, a very large amount of evaporites. The African Copper Belt, there's very little evaporite left, but it's very clear from the structural geology there was a huge amount there when, when things were going on.
0: So what I hear in some of that is that the big issues around setting these systems and basins is that, one, the scale of yep. systems and and the time and the fact that you're also tying into a whole lot of earth history and the development of large scale processes which are not fully understood
1: and the other thing that that there is debate about but but i'm pretty sure is correct and we, you know we are debating the exact amounts but i think time is critical not only when in geologic time these these most favorable periods were but the amount of time it takes for these systems to operate at scale and make big ore deposits.
0: Do we have an idea, any idea really of time scales, and <laughs> the, particularly like these copper systems?
1: Right, so it, it is right now a source of, of debate, and there there are papers going back and forth, and letters to the editor, et cetera, with different schools, and I, I represent one, I guess you'd say. I think there's reasonably good evidence from both the, the Copper Belt and Poland but the systems can, can operate for very long periods of time. And by very long periods of time, I mean really long periods of time, hundreds of millions of years. And that's why I think those two systems are actually great. In the Copper Belt, we have a series of ages really dating mineralization that, that lasts approximately 250 million years. It, it is undoubtedly that, that while mineralization could occur over that period, it probably didn't occur over the entire period, and there are in fact pulses where most of the mineralization did take place. But nonetheless, the system was set up so it could mineralize over a very, very long period. And to me, that's really the fundamental difference between this ore system and, say, the porphyries, where they're happening, to me, geologically almost instantaneous.
0: In talking sedimentary basins, the comparison often comes up to the petroleum industry which is typically more successful than we are in minerals exploration. For Murray, that means thinking about what are the basic mechanisms they use. How do they think about their exploration and their deposits? Well, we need a source, a transport mechanism, and a trap. That provides a simple framework from which to work in what are complex and long-lived systems. But is there a missing ingredient?
1: Now, the one piece that, that, that I guess I differ from the oil people that they didn't think about, but I think we really need to in economic geology, is how do we drive the system? What's the energy? So again, for a magmatic deposit or a porphyry, it's clear. I mean, there's a huge amount of heat energy just in the fluid, so, so that works. When I get into the sedimentary world, I have different ways I can drive fluids around. I can do it you know, by tipping up one edge of the basin and the, the fluids will pour out the other end, so I can have an erogeny and, and dump the fluids out. And a lot of Mississippi Valley type deposits, people think that may be the case. The other way probably that I can do it, and that I'm increasingly looking at in many of the districts I look at, including the Copper Belt, is, is I think you need to have igneous heat. But a lot of times in many of these, these basins and areas and districts, Ireland included, as, as it turns out, we don't have many volcanic rocks. And so the heat is probably coming from actually underplating at a very deep level, probably the base of the crust. And it's actually heating up and allowing in often cases some extension structurally, which gives us part of the, the pathway for the fluid. But that heat is what really ultimately is driving the system. So how do I figure out on, you know, where I, if I am an explorer now, going around to the different basins, which one had... Uh, basically mantle underplating at some point in their history. And that's an interesting problem. So the other thing I learned early on in my career working for oil companies was that they, they learned a long time ago that if you want to find oil, you have to work in teams. We need a ge- geologist, geophysicists. clearly. If you're in the exploration space, a geochemist would be really handy. But we also need, these days, a data analytics machine learning, somebody on the data side. That's the team that I, those are the teams that I want. In terms of looking at the real future of what the planet really needs to get to where it really has to go, which is decarbonizing and, and trying to actually live sustainably on the planet. The only way to get there is, is at least in, in for a while, because we, we just can't do a circular economy right now. And so, you know, for several generations, if we're gonna survive all this. They're going to need people who know how to do this really, really well. So to me, that's, that's a really, you know, that should say, hey, if you want to save the planet, you should be an economic geologist.
4: Well, in, in, in I guess in all of those instances, uh, life doesn't always lead you in linear directions.
0: Dave Broughton is what I would call a geologist, geologist with a deep love of the field and commitment to observation. His career also includes being instrumental in the discoveries of the Kamoa deposit in the African Copper Belt and Platte Reef in South Africa, both with Ivanhoe and both now successful operations that have also set standards for local employment and long-term economic sustainability. If you had known Dave as an undergraduate, though, it might have been pretty challenging to predict his path.
4: Yeah, I, I actually started my university career, if that's what it was, in physics and really didn't know about geology at all. I was at co-op in Waterloo and I managed to get a job 40 years ago now, geez, in the Athabasca Basin, working for one of the uranium companies who were active then at the time, it was the big boom. As a geophysical assistant, and I basically hauled IP wire around. Oh, it was, it was a huge boom. Yeah, and thank goodness because uh, for me, because I went out there and it was great to be in the field and all of that, and I discovered sort of that there were these people called geologists. And they got to do all these cool things in the field. Those two field summers led to my somehow getting switched into geology after doing very poorly in physics and fell in love with rocks, really.
0: Dave Broughton's career has taken a few twists and turns. He would say, though, through no intent on his part.
4: I, I would hate to be accused of having a plan, uh, <laughs> Because it's not
0: really how you operate, is it?
4: It's not. I, I you know, and, and there are you know, there are good things to be said about that, and obviously there are there are not so good things to be said about that. But I suppose on the positive side it, it opens you up to opportunities and, and that sort of plays into really how I ended up in Africa and how I ended up being involved with major discoveries at at Kamoa and at Platte Reef. And I mean I started I in Ontario and so I Ended up working in, yeah, you know, the Tibi and greenstone uh, terrains, uh, gold particularly, and a bit in base metals, but really gold. And I spent I don't know a dozen years doing that, with really no exposure to sediment-hosted deposits of any kind. Quite the contrary. But we came to a, a real junction, you know, like the ones that that are happening now and happened more uh, ten, twelve years ago in the big downturn and. And the industry was drying up and gold gold went down as low as something like $250 Canadian an ounce, um, which is hard to fathom now. And the company I was working for, which was focused on gold in Canada, was a base metal miner based out of the U.S., based in, in Denver at the time, Cyprus. And they, they closed the gold operations here in Canada. But around that same time, they had picked up a, a property in Zambia a copper property. They were a copper company, fundamentally, and offered me the opportunity to go and have a look. They needed someone to go over there and and take over uh, the reins of running this project. It was a pre-feasibility project, and I went for it. And uh, that turned that was Consanchi, and I ended up spending two and a half years working on that and uh, running and, and co-running that prefeas program, and. You want to talk about walking off the, the, the diving board into the deep end. Um, that's
0: what I was just thinking, totally. It was, was pretty much that image, exactly. Like, what a leap.
4: Oh, it was, and it was, it was frightening, in, if that's the right word, to me. You know, I mean, literally, I was used to volcanic rocks and, and Archean rocks, and I mean, just you could not totally different geology. And whatever I might have learned in, in university about the Copper Belt was, was long forgotten. And everybody on the project, you know, I was the boss, knew this.
0: <laughs> well, that, that's even more frightening. <laughs> it,
4: it was quite apparent that, you know, this guy knows nothing about what we're doing here. Anyway, and so, uh, you know, in that instance and in subsequent ones, I think at, at Kamoa and certainly at Platte Reef, coming in and, and being forced to climb a very steep curve, in, in, in my instances in a, in a position of, of you know seniority in particular it just you know sets a whole lot of demands out for you and challenges and, and your eyes to the occasion and and you but you also bring those you know the different perspective and you know you're asking all of these questions half of which are dumb questions but you don't have any preconceived ideas and I think that really led to you know, being able to think differently about the rocks, about the settings of the deposits, about the potential, and so on, that was conducive for discovery. And that was, if anything, perhaps more the case at Platte Reef. So, so yeah, taking those leaps um, can be obviously terrifying, but also extremely rewarding. And and so yeah, I, I highly recommend doing that. Take a leap. Take a leap.
0: Dave's tip for the day. Can you? give me any essence of what it was like when you arrived and adapting to Africa and figuring things out. Did did it feel natural and comfortable to you?
4: No, uh, I, I can remember vividly arriving in Zambia. It was November of 1997. I mean, everything was coming down around our heads in the gold world, of course. And yeah, and I mean, this was Zambia had just reopened really for international investment to privatization the previous year in 96, Cyprus was the first company in and had taken on this project, Consanchi, which was not, is not in the main copper belt. It's, it's well, and on a, nowadays it's, it's a couple of hours drive from the copper belt, but then it was, it was a, a, a extremely poorly maintained pitted road out to, out to this, 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 Eventual mine site and a small town nearby that was a horrific journey, and so I drove in a taxi all the way from the Lusaka airport. It was like a eight or a ten hour drive wow. up to the site, and, and I'd never been in Africa, you know, no idea what, what to expect. I mean, the, the, all of the things that you would expect hit you, you know, the poverty and the and the everything, you know, right. it was all there. Wham! In, in the first, right. so it was it was it was really full on. Made a long list of things to do to deal with all the issues and, and gradually work through them. And, and you know, it's, it's a successful program in the end. Unfortunately, that was the time of mergers, as <laughs> it often is. And, uh, and Cyprus got bought by Phelps Dodge, who, who decided they had no interest in Africa and, and eventually sold the project to First Quantum for a pittance.
0: In what Dave would describe as another fortuitous event, his work in Africa had led him to meet Murray Hitzman. At that time, Murray was at the Colorado School of Mines as a Fogarty professor. Murray seized on the opportunity to convince Dave to come to Mines for a PhD, setting him on a path to new research in the African Copper Belt. So another window opened. Another window
4: opened. So, so, yeah. And, and, and in, in some ways, you know, you know, we learned a lot about sediment-hosted copper. We still are. And, but in some ways, that, in, in many ways, really, that led to eventually my getting involved with Ivanhoe and, and Robert Friedland. I met, I met his son, Govind, on a field trip that came about while I was still at Mines. And then when Ivanhoe was looking for someone to take over running exploration in, 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 in Africa for their projects there. My name came up and so those two things connected and and I found myself flying back and forth to Africa again as a VP uh, running the African exploration projects and Kamoa happened very soon after that.
0: Both discoveries for Ivanhoe, Kamoa and Platte Reef were typical of the Ivanhoe approach, exploring areas that were known districts but not in places conventionally thought of as perspective.
4: I mean, the Platte Reef was different in the sense that the northern limb of the Bushveld was generally deemed to be not of economic interest. In the same way, that I suppose, that the Kamoa area was deemed not to be of economic interest. It was it was sort of generally thought that, well, that's been explored and it doesn't have the same rocks. The paradigm in the Congolese part of the Copper Belt at the time was, you know, the, the deposits are hosted in the mine series.
0: So embarking on a new area... That didn't fit the traditional mold in the district. What did the exploration program in the Kamoa area consist of?
4: In that area it was certainly the geochemistry. Initially the streams which were anomalous which led to the soils which were anomalous. Then there was a a magnetic survey was flown which had a number of interesting features on it in in that area and magnetically of course in in a relatively flat line unit you know you can imagine. So the soil geochemistry in particular, where that unit where the base of that unit daylighted was critical to the initial discovery. And, and the magnetics helped in the sense that it, the magnetic anomalies, the patterns that were that we saw, had a coherence relative to the geochemical anomalies, but we we didn't understand, we just no. saw it. it took some drilling to figure it out, but we knew that there was a confluence. You know, so it was, you know, it was literally a process of discovery. You know, and as has been said, the willingness to f- to to track or to to chase what would have been considered a very low level anomaly, you know, a couple of hundred ppm copper, in a in a district where, or at, at three, four, five, six percent copper outcrops in in most of the other deposits in, in nearby in the mine series, you know. That in itself was, was, I don't know, quite a leap. It was a bit unique because the grand conglomerate, the unit that, that hosts the mineralization, which is more or less sort of gently dipping flat lying, is, I mean, it's upwards of two kilometers thick. It's a package of diamectides and interbedded siltstones and sandstones. Quite a lot of work required to develop an internal stratigraphy within that unit. Uh, at the surface, impossible really at least in the early stages and so it was just sort of the the whole map was one unit so yeah it was whoa you know and uh, so the next couple of years were you know we're all about that i mean when so we lined up a drill program and that was in the summer of the the north american summer of 2008 and one hole after the other on this drill fence continually hit mineralization at the same stratigraphic interval and, and the light bulb went on and you know this is a this is not a a system anything like what one sees in the mine series, where your bodies have all been disrupted by, by tectonics. This is a laterally continuous system like the Kufer Schiefer in Poland, and it sits at the bottom of a stratigraphic layer that's mostly hidden because it's thick and flat lying. And, and at the time, Ivanhoe had something like 1,500 square kilometers with this unit at surface, and you know, no drill holes to the bottom where the ore horizon was.
0: <laughs> the Ivanhoe team made another discovery at Kakula after David moved on to some other things. But Kakula changed the model. Mineralization is high grade and strongly structurally controlled. The new understanding of the role of structure is now also influencing exploration at the Kamoa property. So, as the model and understanding of the system develops, what is still unknown?
4: Well, the older basins, the, the Proterozoic basins, you know there are some real problems we we don't have time we can't date the rocks with any effectiveness and that's you know that's a major constraint when the copper belt in in particular the the, the events are really you know largely basin scale and so yeah it's uh, and there's a district where a crop is very sparse, and you have all of those problems. So, there's a—that's th- why I say you know there's a large scope, I think, for still for for discovery because because of all the things we
0: don't know. Dave's career is one of being open to new opportunities. The most recent one is his work with Cobalt Metals, a group who are combining basic ore deposit science, big data, and scientific computing to explore for battery materials.
4: I'm a fairly dyed-in-the-wool old school. I'm not very computer literate, you know. And so here, here we are with this, I mean, you couldn't be further removed from what happens in a, in a machine prospecting environment in terms of computer literacy. And, and so it's, it's terrifying <laughs> because I'm, you know, because I, I just don't have that sort of background. But at the same time, the opportunity to do something completely different using a new tool is enormously exciting. And, and, and uh, it's another one of these steep learning curves.
0: Absolutely, another one of your leaps.
4: So yeah, and in some ways, perhaps the the most difficult leap because it's it's not a leap into geology; it's a leap to work with with a, a totally different set of, of 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 scientists. And so it's really, in some ways, the biggest leap. And but maybe that's where the biggest and you know, we're hoping the biggest comes from. Yeah. To, to marry those these two fields in, in in a way that that hasn't been done before.
5: But. It made us think, hmm, maybe the shear zones are more important or as important as the unconformity. And I admit that I, at one point when I was knee-deep in this thought, I might rename the deposit class shear zone-hosted uranium deposits that occur at the unconformity.
0: Structure and basins is a recurring theme, and the African Copper Belt is not the only basin to have a variety of deposits. Next, we talk to Mike Gunning whose career includes working for major mining companies, geologic surveys, and now junior mining. He was also instrumental in teams successful in the Athabasca Basin, Saskatchewan, Canada, the same basin that Dave started his career in.
5: I was uh, lucky. I mean, I'm a third-generation geologist, and I've spent my career in geology, both from research to working with a major international mining company like Cominco, to working in the world of junior exploration, which kind of bridges venture capital. But I was fortunate to... I've graduated from UBC with my undergrad and was working with the BC Geological Survey and wrote a letter to an amazing person the Western named Bob Hodder, who was chair of the department. And Bob offered and agreed to take me on to do graduate work on these Paleozoic volcanic successions up in the Stikine terrain in northern BC that I'd worked on with the BC Survey.
0: Post-PhD, Mike worked with Kamenko for about 10 years in global zinc exploration, working with a diverse team with mentors and exposure to exploration and mining. But an opportunity came up for him as the lead mineral deposit geologist, research geologist at the Saskatchewan Geological Survey fortuitously, at the same time as uranium markets were coming to life.
5: I didn't even realize, to tell you the truth, that the business of uranium exploration and mining was taking off. I was that naive at the time. So from a straight geology research point of view, that was a tremendous learning curve for me. And then on the industry side, just got a chance to meet uh, some of the geologists at Cameco and Areva, and elsewhere in the industry and some of the folks in in Ottawa to start to understand um, the current state of the nation with uranium research, The, the Athabasca is a nice example of where what I call geoscience framework information from stratigraphy to geochronology to isotope characterization of the ages of mineralization in the basin for uranium and one of the really interesting things for example and is that most of the major deposits there if you look at the geochronology have uranium lead and other potassium argon and other dates that span four or five different ages virtually all the deposits have produced ages from About 1.55 billion to uh, clusters at 1.1, clusters at 800, clusters at 600, and clusters at 200. And all of them. And so one of the really interesting questions, if you're a uranium explorationist or a research geologist, is, you know, the Athabasca Basin is the only district in the world that has these deposits that are, you know, greater than half a percent, greater than 0.1. And of course, SIGAR and MacArthur are in the 15 to 20 percent range. It's literally the only place of that we know of in the planet when the uranium systems are capable of concentrating uranium to that degree. And so one of the interesting questions is, when you look at the geochronology, is did all that uranium come in at one time? Is it all... The oldest age at call it 1.55 or 1. 1.6, and is simply the geochronology on the uranium-lead systematics is is resetting, or is the prolonged uh, radiometric ages telling you that there's a prolonged history of uranium deposition, and that's why the Athabasca Basin is truly unique in the world of global uranium mineral deposits.
0: Bob Potter, back at Western, where Mike did his PhD, had a profound impact on Mike as a mentor and advisor. And one of the things he instilled was a keen desire to understand original thinking and how that contributes to our current understanding of any deposit.
5: And I sort of took it upon myself to go back and, as opposed to being told what the so-called unconformity model was, I kind of decided to take myself back to the early 70s. I think in the original paper that I thought was kind of the Bible was a Hooven-Sibyl paper in an SEG volume. 1975, it was probably titled Digenetic Unconformity Uranium Deposits. Those sediments were, for the most part, being deposited unconformably on Archean crust. So there had been a long period of exposure, hundreds and hundreds of millions of years from uplifted Archean domains to the 1.65, I think. And so the unconformity is well developed. There are places where there's, you know, 5 to 25 meters of highly weathered uh, paleo surface. And you can imagine that that paleo surface then becomes a permeability zone, high permeability zone as the Athabasca is buried. And even by simply its own weight, because the Athabasca basin never really was buried. It filled. And if you have, you know, 1500 to 2500 meters of basin fill, that's enough to generate its own dewatering. Ironically, the Athabasca Basin, the world's most famous district for uranium, is a, actually a radiometric anomaly low. And it's because of the super-efficient flushing of that basin by diagenesis. So you take that flushed fluid, expose it to an unconformity, and if you had detrital uranium in that Athabasca sandstone, because it was eroding other Archean highlands. Then through the diagenesis, you could uh, leach that uranium, put it into the diagenetic fluid, run it along the unconformity, and when it hits a reducing fluid from the basement, through the magic of of fluid mixing and rapid changes and things like pH and CO2, you can start to form these amazing uh, uranium deposits at the unconformity.
0: The early discoveries were all made at the basin margins with airborne radiometrics, and the diagenic unconformity uranium model at the time focused on the role of diagenesis, fluid mixing, and the importance of a near-horizontal paleosurface in the process. This early work also included strong clay mineralogy to understand what happened to the quartz aronite during the fluid event. This fundamental model remains valid, but more recent updated approaches have aided discovery and certainly changed perceptions.
5: And so starting in the 90s, there was an understanding that although in the original unconformity model, the fluid dynamics around mixing of a reduced fluid and an oxidized fluid in the basin was a terrific way to essentially bring the uranium out of solution, there was also the understanding that perhaps these shear zones were more important than we thought. And that these shear zones are themselves host to some to many late pegmatitic dikes, themselves elevated in uranium, perhaps a couple hundred ppm in the basin, in the basement of the athabasca, run a shear zone through it, liberate that uranium, it's carried in a reduced fluid. And essentially, what you have is shear zone-hosted uranium. It's occurring near the unconformity because, again, you have enhanced permeability and maybe you get enhanced reactivity because of the the mixing of the fluids from the Athabasca, which tend to be oxidized. And I think a reason why there's been a number of new discoveries in the basin, from Millennium by Cameco to Rough Rider with Hathor, and, and you wouldn't have that without this increased understanding of the shear zones. but. Go back to that original model by Hooven and Sybil and realize that everything in that model is bang on. And it is really a thing of beauty for the clarity that they had in understanding the deposits. They didn't have the Pima tool that you're familiar with. They weren't able to look at clay mineralogy with all of the spectral technology that we have. In year 2000, or year 2020, it's become so much easier with the advancements in in the spectral that you know a lot better than I do. And so that's an example to me of where I don't think it's, it's more constructive to go in and say, how have we built on the model? And to answer that question, you actually have to know what the original model was. Some of the really sophisticated geochronology and mineral chemistry mapping have shown us that there's some really long-lived fluid systems on those shear zones. And maybe that's what you need to get a MacArthur River, because the fact is, there's only one place on this planet where you can get a MacArthur River, as far as we know. And you know what? And we've been looking for these things for 50 years, Basins, intercontinental, same age as the Athabasca, Quartz Aaronite dominated, eroding protozoic islands. None of them have deposits like MacArthur. Not one.
0: Our last story brings us back to lead zinc deposits through the career of Sarah Gleason, who leads mineral deposit research at GFZ, Potsdam in Germany.
6: Well, I guess the, the first thing to say is I'm I'm Irish and I grew up in a small town in the Irish Midlands where it was a mining town, so it's one of the Irish lead zinc deposits called the Silver Mines. And I do remember there being two sparkly rocks at home that I loved the look of. That's that you know, and I think partially maybe growing up in that environment started me off on this on this journey of of geology. And so after that, I went to university in in Dublin, in Trinity. I had to do a undergraduate lab project on fluid inclusions, and I just found this idea that you could look down a microscope at these tiny little sample bottles of a fluid that was flowing through the earth maybe 300 million years ago. I found this absolutely fascinating, and I think that really sparked my love of hydrothermal systems. Sarah went on to do a PhD at Imperial, working on
0: generally sub-economic to non-economic quartz veins in Cornwall but studying the nature of fluid flow into those systems from offshore basins. She followed that up with a postdoc at Leeds, where her understanding of fluids expanded while working on the flow of basinal fluids into metamorphic rocks in Norway.
6: So the idea there is that maybe basinal fluids can actually go down. They don't just go sideways, they don't just go up, but maybe they can actually go down into basement rocks and what do they do down there? So I, I was in Leeds for about five years and then I got the opportunity to move to Canada. And for me, the move to Canada was really the, the defining move in my career because I moved to the University of Alberta and for the first couple of years, of course, nobody knew who I was and maybe I didn't really know who I was either either. But then, slowly but surely, I started working with the surveys and with colleagues in industry. And I think it really shaped, if you like, the philosophy that I have today, that my job as an academic is to understand key processes that make ore deposits, but to communicate those processes in a way that I think that industry geologists can can build on that, and to think about the detectable outcome of those processes.
0: The chance to move to Germany came up as the government there decided to revitalize their mineral deposit research groups and move to address the broad geoscience needed to understand the source of metals.
6: So for me, it was a bit scary um, making this jump. I mean, I was a university professor. I loved working at the University of Alberta. I had an amazing group of supportive colleagues. And coming here was moving to a, a country I actually had I'd basically never been to, a language I, I have no knowledge of, um, a culture I know very little of. But it was sort of like, well, Gleason, let's see how, how good you are. I mean, you always complain you can't do X, Y and Z because there's no money. Well, here's a bit more money. So... Let's see what you can do with it. It really was taking a leap and it was completely stepping out of my comfort zone. And I think at the end of the day, I think that that gives you a sort of a sense of flexibility. And it means that every time I'm constantly learning and that's really what drives me. I hate to be bored. So at that time, we had the opportunity via Tech Australia to move to do some work in away from the Paleozoic Basin of the North American Cordillera down to the, the classic basins of the Carpentaria region in Australia, which is the MacArthur Basin and the Mount Isaac Basin. And one of my postdocs, Joe Magnell, has been working on their new TINA system, which is a fairly new discovery. It's an advanced exploration project, and it sits next to the supergiant HYC deposit geographically. So we prefer to, you know, take a fence of drill cores that sit well on a cross-section and take those apart in some detail. But then you have to ask yourself, well, is this the right scale to understand this system? We're looking at individual drill holes and then we go smaller down to hand specimens, to thin sections, and then to laser techniques like laser ablation. So how do we know that the samples that we're taking actually tell us anything about this hydrothermal system? at the deposit scale and then you know and what can we take up to a regional scale that could help with targeting and the joyous thing I think about working with the industry geologists is of course you know they have much larger data sets and so working with them gives us an opportunity to take maybe our you know 150 really detailed lithogeochemistry samples taken over very small core intervals to look, see what those look like when compared to a 15,000 uh, sample data set with 43 elements taken over a 3D, you know, ore deposit. Or hyperspectral, for example. We look at, in the SEM, we look at diagenetic minerals and, and, you know, things like illites and kaolinites and where they fit into the paragenesis with the, with the sulfides. And the hyperspectral gives you a way of really then thinking about those alteration phases on a sub-basin scale as an academic that's actually really difficult to do but I think if you can really work with with our industry colleagues it really gives us this opportunity to describe the system at multiple scales and I think this is this is for for us this is the most fruitful collaboration
0: Sarah is doing fundamental work to advance the understanding of lead-zinc deposits, but many of the tools she uses have been consistent over the years. But not everything is the same, and it is clear there are new ideas and avenues for research.
6: Perhaps in economic geology terms, the way we were treating these carbon-rich mud rocks is very, very old-fashioned. That There was a whole bunch of new science on the sedimentology of of black shales on the chemistry on where they occur you know that was that was out there in the literature but perhaps hadn't been really transported into the economic geology literature so you know even today people still think of these black shales or carbonaceous mudstones as they're probably more properly called they think of them as as forming in deep basins you know in pelagic just organic rain, if you like, at the bottom of a, of a deep basin. And, and that the deposits, you know, really form in these stratified water columns, like the Black Sea, where at the bottom, it's not just anoxic, but it's so anoxic that you get free H2S in the water column. It was clear from the literature that, you know, we were reading that actually, you know, Black Shales can form or these carbonaceous mudstones can form on slopes on continental slopes. you get them in at times of suboxic and anoxic and of course you do of course get them at times where there is this free h2s in the water column so the cynnic conditions. But that just because you have a black shale doesn't mean those conditions existed. And so we went back and, and we did change
0: our, you know, our techniques. The team started using geochemical techniques employed by sedimentologists from molybdenum isotopes to iron speciation and applying them to ore deposit host rocks.
6: And so Joe Magnell's work in his PhD and Neil Fernandez a little bit was looking at, at barite, but, you know, similar sort of idea, And what we find is actually in the Selwyn Basin, in the systems we've looked at, there is not free H2S in the water column. It's not a Black Sea type of system. It's not a eucinic environment where we're exhaling hydrothermal fluids into this, you know, very toxic, if you like, bottom waters of an ocean and you form the deposit during within sedimentary processes. And so, what we actually found is that we, we think the deposits are actually forming in the subsurface, that the host rocks are anoxic, and that the H2S is in the pore waters in the, in the subsurface and is generated by, some, by bacterial sulfate reduction or by sulfate reduction associated with the um, oxidation of methane. And so, you know, the model is, is a bit different. And and these basins look a bit different to what we thought, you know, fifteen, twenty years ago. I mean that the whole move to really understanding
0: the biome and the role of microbes in, yeah. in in multiple environments is fascinating.
6: And I think the that's the other frontier. I think there's the, the geomicrobiological side of it, but I think also the organic geochemistry side of it has been allowed to languish for a long time. For us, we tend to think of organic matter as just being this one thing. And that thing we, we know is valuable as a reductant in, for example, these sedimentary hosted copper systems. But bringing that up to another level and asking the question, well, is all organic matter equally important? So we we, we have a couple of projects in the Kufer Schiefer here in, in Germany with our colleagues, Gaeve said, where we're looking at the interactions between the organic and the inorganic matter. And one of the interesting things that, you know, they've found, if you think of the Cooper Schieffer, is basically, you know, a sheet of copper that goes 60 kilometers. It's a very narrow layer that flows for, the fluids must flow for quite a long distance, potentially. and um, But they're more or less traveling along a unit that you would intuitively think has little to no permeability or porosity, right? It's, it's a shale. So in the sedimentary basins from the oil point of view, people have shown that actually the organic matter can develop porosity and permeability and fluids actually can travel, if you like, through that organic matter. I think this really is a frontier area, both from the gene microbiology, the organic geochemistry, and how we can use that to better understand mineralizing processes.
0: New approaches come in part from a willingness to learn from others outside our normal circles, but sometimes those closely connected to our work can also yield new ideas and alternative views
6: there's one thing um, that I would like to 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 say at the end and and it sort of ties in with I know you've talked to to Murray, and I was very fortunate Murray came and lectured in in my university in Dublin in 1988 when I was I was a student and so I saw his lecture on the Lachine deposit and I still have my lecture notes I think it has like cool written on it somewhere Um, (laughs) but I think I, I was fortunate enough to be teaching a short course in Krakow with him. And, you know, one of the challenges in working uh, in zinc in deposits, well, that's been solved. You know, we, we understand how that works. But I think one of the messages, you know, that really struck me from just listening to Murray's talk is that, you know, we have these basins that have an exceptional endowment in metals. You know, the the, the copper belt, the Kufer Schiefer in copper space, or looking at the MacArthur Basin, the Selwyn Basin. The message that I got is that if we really need to move away, perhaps from focusing too much on models and thinking about the processes, because, of course, in the beginning, you know, Zambian Copper was all about the ore shale. And now we know there are different types of ore deposits forming at different times in different parts of this this long-lived, you know, history of, of these basins. And I think we need to go back to these zinc basins and think about them in the same way, because if you have these, you know, some sort of source rock that is perhaps enriched or you have a really spectacular extraction mechanism, then what you need is you need the right structural architecture to focus those fluids and you need to track. And I find myself going back through the literature in Australia where you have people really vehemently arguing everything's sin sedimentary and then you have a second group of people arguing, oh, it's all diagenetic. And you have a third group of people arguing in Mount Isa that, oh, it's sin deformation, it's associated with orogenesis. And maybe we need to think about, well, could it be all of those things? Because maybe lightning does strike twice or three times in these basins it's just a question of connecting the fluids and the source with structure and that connection could happen at different times and you could end up with quite different styles of mineralization in a long-lived basin history just like we see in in the copper belts so I think it's sort of a plea not to get too sucked into this. this I have a model and everything must fit in them on that model. But really, by thinking about things on a larger scale and thinking about that structural story, whether, in fact, you should be asking the question, OK, we have you know mineralization that formed maybe during sedimentation or maybe during diagenesis. Where would it form when the basin is inverted? You know, where would you go to see that? And so I think we need to start thinking about basins as as long history events with multiple potential sites for exploration. I think sometimes we we can limit ourselves by oversimplifying, and, and to some degree, as somebody who teaches students, we have to oversimplify. But I guess the, the really creative explorers and the really creative academics can, can step away from that. And certainly this, you know, looking for the detectable outcome of key processes is, is, you know, the fundamental tool that we should all be thinking about.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode in the SEG Sequent Partner Discovery to Recovery podcast. I'm Ann Thompson, along with your hosts Nicole Dusset and Halle Keeble. Please join us next week for Geoscience Goes Digital. You can access all our episodes on SEGWeb.org slash podcasts. Be sure to follow Sequent Global and SEG on Twitter, LinkedIn, and other social media channels to get notified when the next episode comes out. This podcast was produced by Ann Thompson, and the theme music is Confluence by East Winds.